Hey, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Human Cogs. We absolutely love diving into these conversations and they always give way more than they take every time. But we can get more of these episodes and stories out to more people like you if you could help us to be found on the pod channels. So the best way for you to do that is to hit subscribe and give us a few stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We super appreciate it and we have stacks more human stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries coming your way very soon. Have you ever set yourself a crazy, big, hairy, audacious goal and found yourself against the odds somehow achieving it? We know that women climb invisible mountains every day, but Laura Youngson's eureka moment came on a volcanic ash pitch 5,714 metres above sea level on Tanzania's Mount Kilimanjaro in June 2017. Youngson, an ambitious entrepreneur, gender activist and the co-founder of global non-profit Equal Playing Field and Ida Sports, had a crazy idea one day that if she could just convince two teams worth of female soccer players from 20 countries to join her on an expedition up a mountain to set the Guinness World Record for the highest altitude game of soccer ever played, they could literally change the game for women and girls the world over. Now, the record ended up making news across the planet and it set Laura on a path she could never have foreseen. This is a conversation with Laura about what happened next, about change, showing up, and how it's mostly the failures that shape us and that make us. Laura shares with us the shadow side of striving, the relentless juggle of bringing up businesses and babies, and that if we could each just summit the limits that we impose on ourselves, well, women and girls can do anything they put their minds to. Here's my chat with the incredible Laura Youngson. Laura Youngson, let's start with the fact that you are a human juggling many balls. Um, quite often I look at you and wonder which balls are you juggling, which balls are you kicking. Let's start with how do you self-describe if someone says, who are you? It's an interesting one because my identity has shifted a little bit over the last few years. And now I, I'd say I'm a fully fully fledged entrepreneur. <laughs> can't can't move away from it, but also now mum as well. And so I'm definitely inhabiting this world that is not uh, particularly corporate. <laughs> it's kind of outside of the mainstream and uh, I don't really want to go back. So yeah, definitely living in this, I guess, innovative, creative, entrepreneurial space um, for sure. Let's go back before we go forward to the incredible things you are doing now in the startup world as an entrepreneur, uh, let alone producing another real human to put into the world as a mum. Let's go back, Laura, um, and understand more about where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Gloucester, which is a little city in the southwest of the UK. Um, Not much happens there uh, other than filming Harry Potter. Uh, and we have a great rugby team, but uh, it's kind of a quiet corner of the UK. Right. And and did you, because you're not a quiet person, uh, we, we've known each other for a number of years and you're certainly not a quiet person. H- how would you describe your childhood there in, in, in that quiet place? I mean, it was super awesome. We, we lived five minutes from the city, five minutes from the country. And so I had a very outdoorsy childhood, um, mountain biking and doing loads of sports. And then I think my parents were not from that area and they traveled a lot around around and about and lived in lots of different places within the UK. And so they had this exposure to other cultures. So I, my dad is a, a really good cook and he was 
he grew up eating very kind of uh, non-interesting, same sort of food in Scotland. And as soon as he moved out and learned to cook, he started creating all these wonderful dishes. So we got exposed to different cultures and different um, experiences very early on. And I think I really enjoyed that curiosity that you get from trying new things and tasting new things. And there were never really any limitations on what you could try or, or learn or things like that. So it was a very, yeah, very fun childhood um, being, being open to, to more than perhaps we saw just in the regular everyday surroundings. So in that quiet place, it was a bit conservative, would you, would you say? And then, but they were quite adventurous in some ways, your parents and the way they approached bringing you guys up. Yeah, very much. So I think if you look at some of my peers, they're, they've lived in the same place. Their families have lived in the same place for generations and, and they're happy and content with that. And uh, I, I was always a bit restless uh, and wanted to, to have these new experiences and, try different things and see see different sites, I mm. guess. Were you a compliant teenager or were you a restless, terrible teen? Uh, I was, I think I was pretty good. I, I, I was really academic um, and also quite sporty. So got on fine at school and kind of sailed through that. And then it wasn't until I ended up having a couple of like failures in, in my later teens or what I like <laughs> you'd see see them as failures but actually they're the things that shape you and I didn't get into Cambridge and that was a really big deal at the time and I failed a dancing exam and it's all these things kind of came together and it made me question like well what do you want to do and what do you want to be and so at that point I became a bit more rebellious and started using my skills to agitate a bit more and kind of push for changes um so what were you trying to get into at Cambridge I wanted to go and study physics and because I wanted to know more about the universe and what it was. And I ended up going to Durham, which suited me really well, but it was a, an interesting thing, the pressure and expectation of school and other people like, oh, well, you're smart, you should go there. And actually it kind of stuffed up the interview, but it was with an old dude and it, well, it didn't inspire me. And you end up kind of looking at those moments and going, well, my life could have been very different, but actually I think I probably ended up where I needed to be. So you wanted to be a... Uh like an astronomer or, or what was it that you wanted to understand about the universe? What was driving you toward that? I don't think I ever had it in my head that I wanted to be um, particularly, I don't know. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew that I had lots of questions and that physics could answer some of those questions. And then also now knowing it, physics raises more questions than it answers. Um, but it's, I think I really enjoyed the, you really get to the fundamental basics of how things work and you can go down these kind of, you learn about like how to analyze the world, very analytical and logical. Um, it then gets very creative and metaphysical when you're talking about new particles and speculating about why well, is there life on other planets? So it's this very, it's a really rich subject that um, I think gave me a really good grounding, but it's hard to then know what to do with it. And again, I was kind of restless and I was like, oh, maybe I should do something else. Um, having kind of learned as much as I could about that particular thing. Hmm. And so then what did you go on and do? Where you, you were rejected and then you went on into which pathway? So I went and studied physics up in Durham um, and got my degree. But after that, um, I was like, no, nah, I'm done with physics. I want to do politics. So I went and worked for the British government for a while. And this is kind of a pattern of, uh, as I look back now, it seems it was all preparing me to be an entrepreneur, but I've had quite a few different jobs and I worked um, bringing 
British businesses to the Brazilian market for the British government. So working with like genetically modified mosquitoes and things like that. And then I worked on the London Olympics and that was super cool. I ran a hotel in Mozambique for a while. I lived in Azerbaijan for a year working on some sports games, spent time at PwC in the Middle East. Um, so it's really this, I've got a super eclectic. You've lived thing. one life, right? This is one person you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was probably a bit weird. But at the time it was just this, I, these opportunities I either created or they came up and I, I said yes to them. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah, that would that would be cool. I think my um, judgment of it is, you know, would it be a great story at a dinner party? Oh, yeah, go and do it. And so um, now I look back and I'm like, wow, yeah, I really learned a lot from pushing myself to go to these different places and have these experiences. And what, what was pushing you? What was driving you toward all these experiments and new, exciting, unknown ventures? I really... This is the this is the secret sauce. This is the bit, the restlessness, I don't know, that I have to see what the future holds and, and in some ways create the future because it um, if it's not looking the way I want it to be, I'm like, oh, I think we should change this. I love that initial curiosity and seeking out new people and new places and having that moment of, wow, the world is so diverse and incredible. And which is very entrepreneurial in, in and of itself. I mean, we know so many entrepreneurs ask why, why, why repeatedly and drive themselves to Yeah, so I got told off for that as a kid a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Too many whys, um, asking so many questions. It's, um, yeah, I think I'm probably a bit annoying in that sense. But those who don't ask will never know what sits on the other side of the why. 100%. Laura, you've gone on amongst all of those things to hold a couple of world records, as you do, in soccer. And tell us about the journey to that. When did you start playing soccer? Well, curiously, only really at 18. So before that, I was very much a ballet dancer and almost went to be be a ballet dancer and stopped that and was casting around for what else I could do and joined a soccer team and I've just loved it as a way to make friends and I'm I'm kind of sport agnostic soccer is a big part of my life but hey it hit me with a squash racket um let's go play badminton anything I will 100% give it a go because I just love that joy that you get of playing playing sport with other people especially um and the camaraderie but Soccer has been really awesome in, in that sense of having teams and I've used it to learn languages in different countries and just make those connections. So it's been, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful way. You can just pick up and play anywhere. Hmm. And, and so it's been a, a vehicle for connection and community for you through connecting through sport. Totally. Um, and it's something that I've really valued as I've just anywhere I've been is always try and find a sports team in Australia playing Aussie rules. Um, what a brilliant game and just being able to have that shared experience with people. Sports, it's universal, isn't it? I, I think we all connect through that. It's its the old Coliseum. You can take the Coliseum anywhere and people will uh, galvanise around it and find a way to, to side with and barrack with teams. Um, Laura, I know in 2017, you led a group of women to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania to to play a record-breaking football match and the match went on to become the highest altitude football match ever played and, in fact, made the, the world records for that. What what led to that moment of, of you taking this group of women up to the top of that mountain? I mean, what the, like, literally what the... Yeah, uh, yeah, I look back now and I was like, oh, that was quite hard. 
I think it was just this, for me, it was a real frustration that thing, things weren't changing. It was, it was very much from the angle of like, I wanted equality in sport. And so I was getting frustrated that women weren't getting paid, like even a fraction of what the men get paid as an pl- amateur player. You don't have access to the same pitches and just that like respect in the newspapers at that point, I think, I did a study and there were more stories about horses than women in the sports pages. And you just think... You mean like sports broadly or just soccer? Sports more broadly. Like, I mean, soccer probably had the most coverage, but I mean, that was minuscule. So it was this, that kind of was the instigator. And then I was looking around and at the same time, I'd seen these guys that play cricket at the top of Kilimanjaro. I was like, ooh, I wonder if we could go, but all women and kind of show what could be done. And, and that really set in motion the the thought of like, well, could we do it? I don't know. Just kind of photoshopped a pitch onto the top of Kilimanjaro. That would be great. Oh yeah. Let's go for it. Was it an act of activism or daring to achieve something that hadn't been achieved? I think very much a combination of both. One lady who came with us, Jasmine from Los Angeles, really put it very well that she was like, women climb these invisible mountains every day and we're climbing a literal mountain to kind of, shine a spotlight on that and for me that really resonates that you've got this you can't always see the the challenges that people are facing and and putting it out there and and going well look we are female and we've done this and it's incredible and now you have that mixture of kind of defiance but also just being super proud and, and inspiring others to go and take on their own challenges. Defiance and daring to do it and empowering yourself but many others by looking, as you say, shining a light on the fact that it can be done. What was actually involved in doing that? I mean, how do you sit there and say, I'm going to Photoshop a pitch onto the top of an enormous mountain? And then how do you actually go about making that reality, manifesting that idea? So I think this is where I excel as an entrepreneur and this is this is my special bit, which is, I do have these ideas and they kind of pop out of nowhere, but then I'm able to see, okay, right. This is the way we're going to get there. And maybe not all the pieces are in place, but there's a clear pathway to like a very, what would seem almost impossible, unattainable dream. And from where we are now, I'm really breaking it down into those steps of like, okay, well, we want to be there. Well, what are we going to need? Who are we going to need? That's often my first question. Who is it that's going to help me on this journey to then go and achieve this dream? And I was really fortunate in that uh, I had a great co-founder for that and she brought in some people and I brought in some more people and then we got a bit of momentum going and we really got the people on board And then some of the logistical challenges, they become, I mean, they were still hard, but they become easier to solve. Like we had to make our own goals. So we had to get Ikea type goals where you put them up and put them down and they went in body bags to the top and you're kind of like having to build all the the structures of the pitch, but also leave nothing behind because it's a national park. So you have this, it was very kind of get down to the details at the end of like, well, what the pitch line is going to be made of. But the overall big picture concept is like, well, we're going to go and play a soccer match at the top. And and this is how, like, these are the people we're going to bring with us and these are the messages that we're going to share. How many people played that match? So we had two teams of, so you allowed extra subs. So two teams of 16 and then um, five referees. So 
because we needed to have one of the things that I just we realised like super late on is that you can play a football match but if you haven't got referees then it's not official and so you also needed spare referees because in case the referees do all the running in case they were super tired um, they'd run out of steam so all in all we took 60 people with us including our support crew How long did it take to actually ascend the mountain to climb the mountain? We took a doctor with us from NASA to help with the altitude sickness. And we took advice that if we wanted to get the most amount of people up there, we should take seven days to have, in order to have time to acclimatize. Um, uh, that plan worked really well. So it actually took longer than people normally take to climb, but we ended up with the majority of people reaching the top and actually having, I mean, the, the ultimate scenario is you don't want them to really collapse and die because that's very bad. So the, when you're planning and mitigating against these risks, we wanted to make sure that the safety of everyone was paramount. And then, you know, and then if you can ensure that, then doing a world record becomes so much easier. In the lead up to playing that match, when, when did you play it? In the morning or the evening? What, what was it like, that feeling of leading up to the actual battle on the top of the mountain? Oh, man. So we had to get up at like midnight, 1am, and then you get into all your gear and then we, you have to climb for kind of five or six hours, just like vertical, um, in order to, to just reach the summit, like the summit crater. And so, but the beautiful thing was, as we were going up, there was this amazing sunrise. So you get to see the beautiful colours. Everyone's really knackered, but you're all doing it together. And curiously, I mean, by the time you reach the crater lip and you're just kind of descending into the crater to go and play the match, like we knew we'd do it because the morale was so strong within the team that the hardest bit was actually that climb. And then by the time we reached kickoff, everyone's like, yeah, we got this. Let's go play. What did it feel like for you having been the person who had this this idea, this audacious idea, and then suddenly being up there in that dust bowl of the crater, what did it feel like for you to be living that moment? It was incredible. For me, I'd had this visualisation of the, the kickoff moment, so the moment that the whistle blows and we're standing there and we're about to play. And we got there and I was like, oh, my goodness, we're here, we've done it, and we've got all these incredible women around and we've, we've, we've managed to bring people together from across the world and we're about to now just do the fun part, which is play soccer. Um, and I just, I was, I had a moment and this was kind of way bef before the match had even started because we got a moment to rest and that kind of thing. And I was just like, wow, this is cool. Um, this is what I can achieve when I put my mind to it. And that was a really cool feeling. How did the world react to that match? So from essentially telling us we'd die um, and not supporting us. As soon as we actually achieved it, we had a really interesting response and we came down from the mountain and we were met with loads of TV cameras and people wanted to do interviews. And it's, it's had this incredible ripple effect that um, we see stories now years later, looking at, um, looking at what we did and, and, and really challenging the, the status quo. And I think one of the most incredible things for me is looking at the individuals that came with us. So there's, there's kind of the ripple effects on the wider ecosystem. But if you look at the individuals, everyone's kind of gone on to do these incredible things. So one of our players is now the CEO of a football club. You've got someone like people you just hear every week, someone's getting a promotion. Someone else became the first licensed boxing coach in Saudi Arabia. That Just these amazing stories of people taking that experience and then using it to do incredible things with their own lives. 
So the ripple effect really of that moment has, has gone on to, to chart new waters in, in, in women's sport. Really. And I keep getting, uh, I keep hearing things from people that are, that, that have seen us and they're like, wow, you've really inspired my daughter to go and do this or to go and do that. And for me, that's, that's the coolest feeling. It's incredible that, you know, that, that, and I know I was, I knew you at that time and, and watched you uh, wrestling with this idea and could we, should we, and then all of a sudden it was happening and up, up the mountain you went. And it, it's, it's amazing one idea can, yeah, indeed have that ripple effect and, and change the lives, if not the world, of many people. I know also that that match you played at the highest altitude and made the record books, um, it also was a catalyst for you realising there was something else that was a, that there was some other inequities in sport and there was a massive gap in the market when it came to the football boots that you played in on that field. Um, so here you were with a group of incredible female football players from around the world and you brought them all together, all corners of the globe, but most of them were wearing boots that day that had never specifically been designed for their feet and that for you catalyzed a whole other daring and audacious idea about how you might move into another new space. Uh, and uh, tell us about what happened when you realised that women were not wearing boots designed for their feet. Mm, I think it had been something that annoyed me for a while. Like, I had to wear kids' boots and because I have small. Uh, like, As in like children's cool, boots? Children's boots to play soccer. I am a fully adult, grown woman and I still have to wear kids' boots. Well, not anymore, actually, because now we've solved it. But the I, the thing that really baffled me was I was talking to these Olympians and World Cup winners, and they were wearing men's and kids' boots as well. And I was like, wow, I thought there was this mythical place in women's professional football that these people would get women's made boots, and it just wasn't there. And the thing that really struck home is I got back home and, and then started looking in the medical journals and realised that, men's and women's feet are different. And this just completely blew my mind. Like, well, if our feet are different, why are we not being offered boots that are made for us? Is, is it that the approach was a, I think the phrase you've used is shrink it and pink it, uh, in that yeah. actually there wasn't any deep research going into the fact that women needed, you know, women were being overlooked basically in terms of elite sports equipment uh, in, and, and men were being prioritised in terms of the designs that were coming into market at mass. Yeah, 100%. It's it's kind of this open industry secret, shrink it and pink it. Hey, that's, they'll be fine for women and women aren't, aren't small men. So the, you're actually providing substandard gear and putting women at risk of injury if they're wearing the wrong stuff. And I think I was looking at it from kind of the revolution that had happened in running. Like if you go into a running store, there are loads of options for women. It just isn't, aren't those same options for turf sports or kind of, as it turns out now, loads of sports have this same issue. And so I, really for me, that was the kind of gap, the disconnect between, well, this should exist. It doesn't exist. Why doesn't exist? Okay, maybe I should just go make a shoe. And, and how does one go about making a shoe to open out an entirely new category in a global industry of fast-moving moving consumer goods? Yeah, it's uh, with great difficulty. Um, and probably if with hindsight, I mean, shoes are really hard, shouldn't do them. But as they, you know, you've got this naivety and you're like, well, I'm just going to make a shoe. So what do you need? Okay, well, you need, first of all, you need the last. And that there's a, a shoe joke that the last comes first. And it's so true. If you ignore the and last. And the last, just for our listeners, the last is for the non-shoe experts. What is the last? The last is the mould. It looks kind of like a, a plastic foot. And so this is what all shoes are made of. Um, and the thing that makes them different is that 
they're shaped to different feet profiles. So for example, there was no female football boot in the last libraries of the world. It just didn't exist. So we started by creating our own and then we created the shoes that go around it. And I think the first shoe I baked in my kitchen, uh, the outsole. So that was, that was definitely my shoe dog moment of just creating that. But you, I mean, the thing that it forced me to do was learn about what makes up a shoe and why are we, it's almost like going back to first principles and using the physics that I studied at uni. Like, okay, so how do we start with this? How do we make a shoe? What, do, what does it mean? What do we do? And looking at then how can you improve it? And so the next step was 3D printing it and then getting samples until we got something that we were happy with. And then what? Once you'd refined the prototype or the early version of what you felt was an appropriate boot for women and not small men what next then release it to the world and we released ours in february 2020 just before the global pandemic shut down all of sport so that was pretty <laughs> um that was that required a slight pivot on our part and it's called and just to uh, for our listeners it's called ida sports the the company that produces the boots correct yes that's right yep yep and ida is, is Ida the Ida I'm thinking of? Um, we have so many. Um, so we started on this journey and we found loads of incredible Idas. So there's Ida B. Wells, who is a civil rights activist in the US. There's, you can just Google Idas. They're amazing. But it also means it has a couple of other resonances for us in other languages. So in German, it means to be, it's a name that means hardworking. And, and that really resonates with a lot of our athletes who are, are just super hardworking. And in Spanish and Portuguese, it's either so the way or to go the journey. And so we feel that that, that's really, again, the part of what we're doing. We're creating this wave of change that um, is rippling through the industry. Wow. And, And what's Ida up to now? Tell us about how you've been interacting with sporting teams around the world. So from inauspicious start, uh, we've actually done really well and we've got lots of players wearing the boots. So our boots were actually in a grand final. Bell Doors from the Brisbane Lions was wearing them to win the grand final. We've got our boots on the feet of players from far away as kind of the Brazilian national team through to players in Japan. Um, and it's really had this, this impact on people who have had pain when they play or they've had blisters. And it's one of these barriers to play, playing and continuing sport. So I love it when I, I get to read the reviews of people just saying, look, these are the best cleats I've ever owned. I feel like I'm wearing clouds. And you think, brilliant. That is exactly what I was trying to solve for. It's incredible what you've achieved in such a short time. It's only a couple of years the company's been been running. And obviously your life's been through enormous change in that time uh, from uh, being an entrepreneur, launching a new product to the world, and then going on to uh, produce another quite incredible product, which is your son uh, as a first-time mother. And I'm a mother of four and also an entrepreneur, and um, and I know too well the uh, the struggle that it is to bring up businesses and babies. Um, how have you found the transition to being a very driven person, an entrepreneur with, you know, uh, you know an enormous amount of, of of velocity in your life. How have you found that transition to motherhood uh, and bringing that into your fold? Well, I think weird to start with. Also weird because it's happened, it happened kind of during the pandemic as well. So Cal was three months. I just had, just had him and just, you know, you're just kind of getting into your routine. And then, then we went into all these lockdowns. And so we had this kind of unusually intense period of life where 
you're you're engaging with your kids so much um, and and with nothing else because that's all there is because of the lockdowns. So I went from kind of like thinking I knew what was going to happen to having no clue about, you know, how you can manage it and juggle it. And it took a long time to then find a bit of a balance where you can still work on the business, but at the same time, um, spend time, spend time with my kid. And with hindsight, it's been brilliant because I've seen all these incredible moments because he's just been around. I I feel a little worried because he does really like zoom and knows about, uh, loves to chat on Zoom, and I, I wonder about his long-term sanity. But in terms of actually, I mean, he's he was hanging out yesterday, and he was like working on the laptop on shoes. And I was like, okay, we've well, picked up quite a lot then in the last couple of years. So maybe I've got my youngest employee uh, here. <laughs> how do you how do you manage that, Laura? How do you manage uh, parenting? Um, and I'm not going to say mothering per se because I know. Um, so often we see the currency of care is carried uh, by women predominantly and, um, and and sometimes I don't like asking working women about parenting because we should not just, sh- men don't often get asked that question, but actually you and I know each other well enough to, to know that the reality is you really are, um, there's a lot of hidden work, a lot of invisible mountains we're climbing every day, to use your words, uh, around managing ourselves with the expectations we have as mothers and the expectations we put in ourselves as business owners, um, and and to be fair, as an entrepreneur, our expectations are obviously quite outsized around expectations of ourselves and what we can achieve. And so, how are you managing the uh, the expectation you have for yourself around what you want to achieve in a global business uh, in Ida Sports, balanced against the day to day reality of of trying to bring up a tiny human? Mm. For me, I mean, I'd like to say it's all the same, but (laughs) some weeks are better than others. And I think that that's the thing to take away. And I try not to beat myself up about that, that some weeks it goes great and I have childcare and it's awesome and I can get loads of work done. And then other weeks um, it doesn't. And like a couple of weeks ago, I just forgot to sort out childcare. And so (laughs) had an absolutely horrendous Monday because I'm trying to do these calls and then, Cal's calling for me and and getting annoyed that he, because he wants attention. And so for me, I mean, my ideal state and part of the reason I chose to go down the entrepreneurial path is because I wanted a bit more freedom with my time. So to be able to work at certain periods of time and then to to take time off to go swimming with him and and do all these cool things um, that are kind of outside the nine till five um, formalities. But I think the the key thing that I rely on and I like doing is, is building the team, right? So there's no way I'm going to achieve my dreams if I'm on my own. And so I've over-invested in team and the time I can spend with my team and, and, and getting them to a position where they can take on responsibility. Now, again, doesn't always work perfectly. And I find that in the weeks that I'm doing too much and not delegating enough, then it's gone really badly. Um, and you have to kind of center yourself again and be like, what's my role here? My role is to delegate effectively so that our team can work 
in the best way possible. Um, and the results really start to pay off. It, it kind of, you need that time. And we invested a lot at the beginning of this year in our team and it's now paying off. You're sort of seeing that six month lag and it's really um, giving me then that freedom to step back a bit and, and step up to think about the next step in the business. How has motherhood changed you for someone who's been curious and driven and done so much in your life already? How has motherhood tempered you or changed you? It's made me slow down in a good way because you can't walk very fast with a toddler. They stop to look at everything and, you know, and there's a dog to be patted and a digger to look at and a dump truck. And so it's that I can't just walk past all these things and, oh, no, I'm on, on my, I've got to be doing this. No, I've, I've got to take that time to really engage and, and hang out and, for me, it's been really beautiful because it's okay. As you say, we're quite driven and we want these things to happen and to achieve lots, but it's okay to sit and like pick up blades of grass because grass is a new sensation. And I think for me that rediscovering that curiosity and play through my son learning about the world has been so beautiful and kind of seeing how he's seeing something like textures. It's a new texture. You've never even touched this thing before. You're like, wow, that's incredible. So I, I'm definitely much more, um, much more caring for his needs and really like thinking about what, what's going to make him happy and being able to sacrifice my time in order to bring him joy, even if it is going to look at another dump truck. <laughs> it's, um, it's a beautiful way you put it, I suppose. It's about um, him bringing you back to a cadence or where you're stopping to notice. You're stopping to notice what's in the world and I think we can get into patterns of rushing and, and just high velocity um, and, and not realising that in those tiny moments and tiny steps you can find wonderful things. I, I do know uh, when I had my first daughter, uh, this I had this incredible feeling of seeing the world anew, like I was looking at the world through someone else's eyes, uh, hers, um, Suddenly, and it was this transportative, unusual feeling of um, suddenly making room for two in the way that I, I looked out at the world. And uh, it really forces you to, yeah, just think beyond your own immediacy, I suppose. Yeah, it's very much kept me grounded, especially in the startup world where there's a lot of pressure and there's pressure from myself to succeed, but there's also kind of external, like, well, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And actually just to step back and what's 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 the thing what are the things that are really important and having enjoyment and having fun with my son is is definitely one that I really enjoy what are the other things you do Laura apart from time with him and stopping to notice what are the things you do then to relieve yourself of that pressure cooker that is uh is sitting inside a, a fast-growing startup so the team is really good as well and I go I go back to this is that we don't take ourselves too seriously and it, we have these very nice grounding moments where we're able to kind of take the pressure off and remind ourselves that we're doing something a bit different and we don't have to play by the the rules. But for me personally, I have a, like, I try and get these moments away. I, I try and do a lot of exercise again. It doesn't always happen because um, being a mom and doing the business, but really trying to get that time time away to just go and swim for a bit or go for a run. And I, I read a lot. So um, anything and everything, always have a book on the go to read a little bit before bed. And I kind of flip between, you know, your sci-fi fantasy 
type novels and then business businessy startupy things that will improve the business um, <laughs> like all good entrepreneurs um actually speaking of books which book or idea has most influenced you recently mm, good question so i'm actually reading a lot about post growth capitalism now the the reason i'm reading this is cuz i got a bit freaked out by the amount we're consuming as societies and looking at the pressures of growth that we must have growth at all costs and actually for me this is a, a it's the dichotomy that we're we're struggling with as a in order to grow as a startup you need to produce more but actually the world has finite resources and and we should be thinking a lot more about what we're doing i'm going down this wormhole of looking at uh, economic systems and ways that we can use the rules and and play with the rules in order to create a more sustainable society and a more sustainable environment. So just some light time, light bedtime reading. Mm. Well, what is your relationship with that? You're putting a product into the world, albeit solving solving for a good problem uh, in that women haven't had football boots to cater for them. But, but how do you feel about you're producing stuff that ultimately goes out into the world? What's your relationship with that? So I think one of the things that I've we we do a lot of is looking at the sustainability of materials um, and trying to ensure that the majority of the materials are sustainable. So what do we mean by that? Because there's very different things, things like can you use 100% recycled materials? Can you use so non-new materials or materials that can be broken down? And that's definitely a journey that a lot of the industry is going on, but it's an accelerating trend. Um, I think one of the key things is not creating as much waste. So we do a lot actually on demand forecasting. So you're not producing stuff that the world doesn't need. So really being driven by consumers and customers and also looking at end of life of products. So there are some great businesses in Australia, actually um, a company called Save Our Souls is doing recycling of shoes. And so looking at how your product can then have another life after, after its um, use um, and that, but it's definitely something that I think you should keep top of mind as you grow a company and it shouldn't just be growth for growth's sake. Um, and not producing stuff that, yeah, just fills up landfill. Um, I think the bigger companies are getting better at this, but the definitely the fast fashion industry has had an issue with um, producing too much stuff. Or, for example, brands in the past used to send stuff to landfill. I think they still do send stuff to landfill if it's left over. And you think, well, there's loads of people around the world that would benefit from these things. Yeah, like the dumping dumping surplus and, yeah, absolutely. Dumping surplus for mm. sure and shredding things. And, and you think, well, look, I think every brand should have a plan for the end of life of their product and be partially responsible for or, or um, offer options to consumers to do things with it. Absolutely. And, and we see a new shift towards circular economy and through the, you know, rapid consumption cycles we've lived through through the 80s and 90s. And now there is some, you know, some more, companies like yours coming in and, and considering that supply chain and the ethics of production itself um, uh, and, and and meeting demand but not having whole warehouses full of inventory or stock that's sitting there that might end up being dead stock uh, sitting in landfill in holes in the earth. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Would you, just, just thinking about the path you've taken, Laura, and, and the 
um, you're incredibly positive, I suppose, and the way you frame a lot of the journey is incredibly positive around entrepreneurship. And yet we know it's it's bloody hard. It's a hard path. You're the one getting up every day, um, flogging yourself to to give your company the chance of getting up and out to market. What's what's been most challenging about the path that you have taken in your in your career and your choices? I think, especially at the moment, it's the uncertainty. And I talk about this a lot. Like uncertainty kills small business. So you need to know whether it's a yes or a no, but you can't just be left hanging. And I think that's one of the the more difficult parts of trying to know what's coming up. And I use this in everything. So for example, my salary, like what you need to have enough to eat and and to pay your rent. And so how do you then um, ensure that you're doing that, but you need to then balance that with there are, there are a certain amount of risks that you need to take to build a business. So for me, it's that can you trying to remove the uncertainty um, is a constant battle for me. And, and that's the thing that's most challenging because you're stuck in that state and you have to be comfortable living in that state. So it's, it's less of an acute challenge and more just something. It's like a chronic, chronic injury. You just carry uncertainty with you everywhere. <laughs> well, what's, your, what's your relationship with risk? I'd say I take calculated risks. I'm probably, we're probably at the riskier end of the spectrum. Like, I mean, not everyone goes to climb Kilimanjaro to play soccer. But I think the things, like I wouldn't have done it unless I had a doctor with me and I wouldn't have done it unless we'd done the training and I wouldn't have done it unless we'd, we'd planned it. So really kind of, I spend a lot of time strategizing and thinking through tactics so that it minimizes the risk when you're, you're doing something new. Um, and the more, the thing that I find, the more that you do this journey, the easier it gets as in you've seen a situation before, or you you have someone you can rely on to in your team that can deliver something. So it does get easier. So you're building skills or there's a pattern recognition that's occurring there where you're, exactly. you're compounding your certainty in some ways to then mitigate against that uncertainty. So the more you're playing at being an entrepreneur, the easier it gets. Yeah. Speaking of tactics and, and strategizing, what, what, what habit or tool do you think has most improved your life recently or in recent times? Oh, good question. One of our mentors suggested a really great tool to us, which we now use um, because planning is really hard to do in startups because you don't know what's going to happen. And and we meet a lot of investors who are like, so what's your end game? Or what's, what are you going to do in a year's time? And you're like, well, I don't really know because yeah, it depends on what's going to happen in this next short period of time. So she suggested actually looking at things um, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. So looking on those time scales, because actually in startup land, things change very rapidly. And once we started doing this and we do this with our team every month is kind of look ahead 30 days and what are, what are the priorities? And we, we do it independently and then put it all together and, and see whether the team is on the same page and then have the conversation. So we use a lot of tools, but actually the thing that I think is most improved how we work is use the tool for the conversation. So the tool is there to draw out the information, but the the quality is then in the conversation. Like as a, for example, last month we looked, we did this exercise and we found that we're probably spending about 30% on internal processes and 70% on external, so sales, marketing. And that feels about right because we're now getting some more shoes, we're getting some more stock and the the team needs to pivot to be a bit more outward facing. But we ha- we're able to have that conversation a result, as a result of using the tool to think about these things. So we do that quite a lot. If you're using 
things like retrospectives. So what's gone well, what's gone badly, what's still, what's still puzzling you, what things can we change? Using tools like that to then drive these conversations and change has been one of the more effective ways to really make sure you're on track with what you're doing. For someone who is, is driven and has achieved an incredible number of things, how do you define success for yourself? How do you know you've crested mountains? Oh, that's, it's a hard one, hey? Um, how do you know till you've done it? I think I was terrible. I'm terrible at this and I'm always on to the next thing as soon as I achieve a goal. But what we've done as a team is start making sure we celebrate things that are really good wins. Like we ran a successful crowdfunder earlier this year and we just stopped to take a moment to be like, well done everyone. This is awesome. And for me, I've become a lot more attuned to the journey and the the path. And so looking at, am I moving along the right place? Am I doing good? Am I still enjoying myself? Am I having an impact? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then I'm definitely in a good place. And that is, those are the micro successes that kind of keep you going along the way. The little mountains or the hills along the way. Where's the path taking you next? So curiously, (laughs) you will laugh at me. Launching another business. Why not? Um, I actually laughed. (laughs) I've seen, spotted another gap. And for me, why not? We've got the team, off we go. Essentially launching a women's e-commerce sports store um, because I was spotting that the same challenges that we have as a brand, other brands happening. And I found myself recommending products again and again to people who are like, can you just make boxing gloves or can you just make this? And I was like, well, no, there's another company that's doing it for women. So I'm building this um, store for the UK and I'm launching it next week, hopefully, uh, classic entrepreneurs. And just seeing seeing these gaps open up and, and building the teams around them. Um, and that, it really keeps me excited and interested because it allows me to look at either in a different way. And, and if we run up into challenges, you can kind of put a different hat on and see how you can solve them. Amazing. Well, I'll look forward to, is it called Ida Sports, the online store or what? No. So we're opening up a new business called Kindred Sports. So it will be available and I'll send you all the handles. We're opening up Kindred Sports and it's going to be um, a marketplace for, for female and non-binary athletes. So uh, people that cannot see themselves in um, your traditional um, stores because we still can't and I think we need to rewrite the future because I'm so fed up of it. Well, you, you're, certainly, you're certainly doing that and good luck with all your endeavours. I think women of the world and, and indeed non-binaries of the world and everybody uh, all the better for um, seeing that you are happy to walk in other people's shoes and work out how to actually design uh, equipment and, uh, and and sporting opportunities for them that weren't there before. So thank you for all you do to inspire and equip um, the, the, the current generation and the next generation with what they need to go forth and, and stride out in sport. Laura, we like to end all of these conversations by asking our guests this final question. Life can be challenging and complicated, especially for the entrepreneurs of the world. Um, When you think about all the people you interact with or who have shaped you, who do you think is doing human really well? If I'm allowed to pick more than one person, I have this incredible squad of mountain sisters that I climbed the um, 
the Kilimanjaro with and, and mountain sisters also include guys um but these this group of people just really inspire me on a, a day-to-day basis they they're from all walks of life they have all different circumstances and they are all they're showing the facets of um women's sport and and team and interactions so well and every time I I perhaps lose my way or I'm feeling a bit like it's not working I know I can call any one of them and we'll get this incredible connection and be able to um just yeah chat through the problems and 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 look forward to the future so I'm really I I get so much inspiration from them they're just a, a wonderful group of people Amazing. Thanks for joining us on Human Cogs and we look forward to watching you crest ever more mountains as you step out. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.